Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Twelve people determine if a death is tragedy or murder. This is Method and Madness episode 34, Injustice, The Murder of Dominique Dunn. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. Hey, this is Kate. I'm a forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, and I collect stories. Everything from true crime to trauma to parenthood. There's a lot more in common between depression and sociopathy, or between serial killers and podcasters, than you might think. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at iwbpodcast.com and iwbpodcast on social media. We're painfully aware of the rhetoric of, well, what was she wearing? That dangerous question that's been asked countless times from someone sitting in their living room watching the news to a cross-examination inside of a courtroom. In 2011, a judge in Manitoba, Robert Dewar, made a statement during the sentencing phase of a man on trial for sexual assault. The defendant in that case had assaulted a woman he met outside of a bar and Justice Dewar handed him a two-year conditional sentence rather than jail time. Some of his comments made while handing down the light sentence were that, quote, sex was in the air that night, and that based on the woman's outfit, heels, makeup, and a tube top, that the night had, quote, inviting circumstances. Now, if survivors of sexual assault or witnesses to a sexual assault are questioned in this manner if the victim's experience is minimized to what they happened to pull out of their closet that day, is it any wonder that deceased victims would be in question for decisions they made in life? We tend to think that there's more respect for victims that are no longer here to tell their story. And while victim blaming is abundant in the media and elsewhere, with phrases like, well, they were no angel, the same sort of conversation regarding what a female victim was wearing or how they carried themselves, why they were smiling in a photo, or even unsubstantiated rumors of personal health care decisions, all exist inside the court. For the victim's family to sit and listen to while also being told not to eye-roll, not to cry during the trial, for you may be removed from the room. Oh, and if a victim's family member happens to use a wheelchair, well, that's frowned upon. Let's dive in. It was 1982. In Hollywood, the first season of Late Night with David Letterman had premiered. And at the risk of sounding Serling-esque, the avenues of Hollywood and crime would intersect. 
In March of that year, as we discussed in episode one, The Murder of Rebecca Schaefer, actress Teresa Saldana was brutally attacked outside her West Hollywood home by a deranged fan with a knife. Teresa miraculously survived the attack, which was so violent that the weapon, a five-inch hunting knife, had been bent. She spent four months in the hospital and the rest of her life fighting for victims until her death in 2016. Shortly after surviving her own attack, Teresa would soon find herself protesting the injustice resulting in a trial that seemed doomed from the start. A trial in which the judge seemed to relish in his own perceived celebrity status, where more sympathy was paid to the defendant than his victim, where the jury was dismissed during key elements of the case. Today, we're talking about the murder of Dominique Dunn. Dominique Dunn was born on November 23, 1959, in Santa Monica, California, to parents Dominic and Ellen Lenny Dunn. It was an affluent family, Lenny an actress, and Dominic a writer and Hollywood producer. Dominique had two sisters that died shortly after their births, and two older brothers, Alex, a teacher, and Griffin, an actor who you probably know from films like American Werewolf in London and countless others, along with appearances in TV shows, as recently as playing Nikki in NBC's This Is Us. He's also a producer and director. Dominique attended Westlake School in Los Angeles, followed by private schools in Connecticut and Colorado, and learned to speak Italian after living for a year in Florence. Her parents had separated and divorced, and Dominique was an avid animal lover and rescuer and showed interest in acting as a child. She studied the art at the Milton Katsela's workshop in L.A. She appeared in small roles on TV shows in the late 70s and early 80s, including the Emmy-winning series Fame. And her breakout role came when, at 21 years old, she was cast as the oldest of the Freeling children in the 1982 film Poltergeist, a terrifying collaboration from Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper. Dominique's portrayal of Dana was impressive in its range from preoccupied teenager to devastated big sister. Roger Ebert called Poltergeist an effective thriller, and 40 years later it still holds up. Its success sparked two sequels, but tragically, Dominique would not have the opportunity to return to her role. Following the release of Poltergeist, Dominique was cast in roles on popular TV shows like Chips and Hill Street Blues, and was working on a part in the sci-fi miniseries V in October of 1982. It was a role that would have to get recast. While at a party in 1981, Dominique, then 21 years old, met 25-year-old John Sweeney. The two instantly hit it off, and their relationship grew serious. They moved in together into a house on Rangeley Avenue in West Hollywood. Sweeney was a sous chef at Ma Maison, a glamorous restaurant at 8368 Melrose Avenue in Beverly Hills, where a young unknown chef named Wolfgang Puck was introducing L.A. to -to farm-to-table dining. 
John Sweeney was born in Hazleton, a coal town in Pennsylvania, about 30 miles south of Scranton. His upbringing has been described as chaotic. Sweeney's father was an epileptic alcoholic abuser, abusing his wife and children. The different upbringings, the contrasting backgrounds of Dominique Dunn and John Sweeney, would be highlighted later as an excuse or justification. Sweeney was determined to get out of Pennsylvania and ventured out to Hollywood. He was skilled in culinary arts and brought that to a posh restaurant, determined to make something of himself. The two were in love, and after a few months of dating, 22-year-old Dominique was eager to introduce her beau to the men in her family who were living across the country in New York City. They hadn't had a chance to meet him in person, and it was a close-knit family. And so, Dominique and Sweeney flew out to New York City for a few days. That first night, they went out to dinner with Dad, Dominique, 56 years old, and brothers Alex, 25, and Griffin, 27. And some immediate red flags were definitely raised. One incident occurred at the restaurant after Dominique had left for the night. A patron at the bar had recognized Dominique from Poltergeist, and called out her famous line, What's happening? which she screams towards the end of the film as her house is overtaken by paranormal forces. It was an innocent gesture, a common one whether it's New York or L.A., and us ordinary folk are suddenly in the presence of a movie star. But it incensed John Sweeney, who grabbed the man, picked him up off the ground, and shook him. The confrontation was later described by Dominique's brother, Alex, as a disproportionate reaction on Sweeney's part. And from then on, Alex was not shy in expressing his dislike for his sister's boyfriend. Dominic continued to spend time with the couple while they visited. And after observing their interactions, he saw tension and found that Sweeney wasn't an easy person to talk to and he got the sense that if Dominique were ever to break things off, it wouldn't be easy. Here is Dominic, years later, in an interview. None of us liked him. And, you know, he thought it was because it was a class thing, that he was the whatever, and he thought we were this. And, uh, but that wasn't why. It was, there was something creepy about this guy. Dominic called Dominique's mom one night to tell her, quote, he is much more in love with her than she is with him. Lenny, who lived in California and had already met John Sweeney, said, you're absolutely right. It was even more complicated than that. Unbeknownst to the family and initially to Dominique herself, John Sweeney had a history of violence against women and had severely beaten a previous girlfriend just the year prior. And as his true self was slowly bobbing to the surface in his interactions with the family, behind closed doors with Dominique, he showed classic signs of a domestic abuser, using power and control methods such as intimidation, isolation, minimizing, and blaming. Determined to try and make it work, the couple went to therapy, together and individually. In a letter that Dominique wrote to Sweeney and was later read in court, she said, quote, 
Selfishness works both ways. You are just as selfish as I am. We have to be two individuals to work together as a couple. I am not permitted to do anything on my own. Why must you be a part of everything I do? Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you jealous of every scene partner I have? Why must I recount word for word everything I spoke to Dr. Black about? Why must I talk about every audition when you know it is bad luck for me? Why do we have discussions at 3 a.m. all the time instead of during the day? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I've told you it makes me nervous. Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you have made up in your head. I'm the person who makes you angry, who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you are faced with the real me. That's why arguments erupt out of nowhere. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you, and I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you are going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great. But when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. The letter provided insight into Sweeney's jealousy, possessiveness, and abusive nature. He was obsessed, reportedly showing up at sets where she was working, pestering her about male co-stars, and that irrational jealousy would erupt into terrifying violence. Dominique sought refuge at her mom's home one evening, crying and describing Sweeney's temper, how he would break dishes and throw furniture in a rage. But she assured her mother that she didn't fear for her own safety. But then on August 27, 1982, two months before her death, Dominique once again knocked on her mother's door in Beverly Hills, this time. Sweeney had gotten so enraged during an argument that he had pulled chunks of Dominique's hair from her head. Sweeney later showed up at Lenny's home, banging on the doors to be let in begging for Dominique to come home while Lenny threatened to call the police. Dominique did return to Sweeney after a few days, hoping the change he promised was soon to come. The following month, on September 26, 1982, Dominique and Sweeney had gone out with two friends. They retired to the house on Rangeley Avenue, and their friend, Brian Cook, and his girlfriend, Denise Dennehy, were spending the night. From the next room, as they settled into bed, Brian and Denise heard a loud commotion. Brian described, quote, the most horrendous sound I ever heard in my life. Dominique and John Sweeney were arguing, and Sweeney had grabbed her by the throat and started to strangle her. Dominique was able to break free and ran to her friends with marks on her neck. Dominique escaped out the bathroom window and jumped into her car. She headed to her friend's home, Norman Carby, who took pictures of Dominique's neck and of the markings. It was hours later that Dominique would film her role in Hill Street Blues. She played a teen mom abused by her own mother. In one scene, Dominique's character is hit and berated by the mother, 
a moment that's hard enough to watch on its own, but all the more excruciating knowing that her performance, her reaction to the abuse, was authentic. The episode didn't air until after Dominique's death, and in it, the bruises on Dominique's face and neck are real and not an effect of makeup. Dominique remained out of her own home for a few days to avoid Sweeney, staying with friends and her mom. And then once she mustered up the courage, she broke up with him over the phone. She convinced him to move out after eight months of living together. And once he was gone, she went back and changed all the locks. Dominique told her father of the breakup. He's not in love with me. He's obsessed with me. It's driving me crazy. But Sweeney wasn't going to go that quietly. It was Saturday, October 30th, 1982, just weeks before Dominique's 23rd birthday. She was at home that evening, rehearsing a scene for V, a sci-fi miniseries about an alien invasion. With her was 20-year-old actor David Packer, her co-star on the show. Taking a break from running lines, Dominique was on the phone with a friend when the operator broke into the call. Back in the day before call waiting, if you were calling someone got a busy signal, in the case of an emergency, you could call the operator and have them break into the line. So suddenly there was John Sweeney on the line pleading with Dominique to give him another chance. She got him off the phone, and 10 minutes later, there was a knock at the door. Sweeney had gotten off of work at Ma Maison around 8.30 that night and walked from Melrose to Dominique's home on Rangeley Avenue. She refused to let him inside, and David Packer asked if he should leave. She insisted he stay and excused herself to go outside to get her angry ex off the property. From inside, David could hear Sweeney say, We've got to settle this right now followed by the two arguing, and then screams and what David described as a thud sound. He called the police but was told that the house was out of their jurisdiction. Next, he called a friend, leaving a message on the answering machine that said, If I die, my killer was John Sweeney. Only David Packer can answer why he didn't defend Dominique that night. Some moments later, David went outside and saw Dominique lying still on the ground. Sweeney, crouched down beside her, looked up and told David, Call the police. I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. After Dominique had confronted Sweeney outside her home, he had dragged her up the driveway and into the yard of the house next door. Sweeney wrapped his hands around her throat and strangled her. She was defenseless. He was six foot one and 170 pounds, no match for her at five foot one, 112 pounds. And after four to six minutes, she was unresponsive and near death. David flagged down a sheriff's parking officer and asked her to call the police, who responded minutes later. Dominique was rushed to Cedar Sinai. En route, her heart stopped but she was resuscitated upon arrival at the hospital. She was in a coma. 
had suffered severe brain damage and was put on life support while her family was notified. Dominic Dunn immediately flew to L.A. to be with his ex-wife, Lenny. Alex and Griffin would be shortly behind. Lenny, a wheelchair user who was battling MS, told Dominic that the situation was not good. She was urged by friends not to go to the hospital, for it would be too stressful, but she insisted. Once Alex and Griffin arrived in L.A., the family went to Cedars-Sinai, unprepared for what they were about to see. Earlier, a doctor had called Dominic and requested permission to insert a bolt into Dominique's head to relieve the pressure. Dominic granted the permission, whatever was necessary. Upon entering the ICU, the family were required to present their identification to visit. Staff wanted to ensure that the press wasn't going to sneak in to snap photos of the actress by posing as family members. When Dominique's parents and brother saw her for the first time, they were shocked. Her neck was swollen and purple, and the markings were visible of the hands that had strangled her. She was hooked up to machines that were helping her breathe, and her head had been partially shaved, a bolt inserted. Her eyes were open, and her mother described her as looking beautiful. But she was not responsive, and doctors said her brain scan showed no signs of life. But in order to ensure that no defense could claim she was taken off life support, the doctors recommended three more scans be taken before Dominique would be considered for taking off life support. Her brothers and her parents gathered around Dominique as she lay in a coma. They comforted her and told her they loved her. Headlines stated that Poltergeist co-star Dominique Dunn was in critical condition following a, quote, choking attack. Dominique never regained consciousness and died on November 4, 1982, five days after she was attacked by John Sweeney. Lenny told the doctors to donate her organs. It's what Dominique would have wanted. Her heart was sent to a hospital in San Francisco, and her kidneys were donated to Cedars-Sinai, where two patients were waiting for a transplant. Dominique's funeral was held at Good Shepherd Catholic Church in Beverly Hills on Saturday, and the family asked for donations to be made in her name to Greenpeace. Dominic Dunn wrote about the days he was with Dominique in the hospital, the weeks following her murder when he and his family were unable to have space to mourn, and he wrote of the trial that followed. I highly recommend reading the Vanity Fair article. Steven Spielberg and producer Frank Marshall said, quote, The loss of Dominique is tragic and incomprehensible. She was a treasure of natural ability. Foreshadowing what was to come, an article in an L.A. newspaper said that actress Dominique Dunn was murdered by her ex during a lover's quarrel. After the police arrested Sweeney at Dominique's home that night, they noted that he seemed more concerned with his own fate than with his ex-girlfriends. He said in the back of the patrol car, I fucked up. I can't believe I did something that will put me behind bars forever. Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard. I just kept on choking her. Sweeney was initially charged with attempted murder and assault charges, to which he pled not guilty. He was transferred to West Hollywood Substation Jail. His bail was set at $75,000. 
After Dominique died, the charges were changed to murder, and Sweeney's bail was increased to $500,000. The lesser charges of attempted murder and assault were then dropped. It was all over town that John Sweeney was being supported by his boss, the founder of Ma Maison, Patrick Terrell, who had allegedly posted his bail and vowed to get him the best defense counsel his money could buy. These claims, however, were disputed by Terrell, who was painfully aware that over the next few years, Ma Maison would meet its ultimate demise, the result of his clientele shying away from the restaurant that was now connected to a murderer. On December 17, 1982, right next to an article about Manson disciple Susan Atkins being denied parole, there was a headline, Chef to Stand Trial and Death of Actress. One preliminary hearing was delayed when Sweeney was found in his cell, bleeding from the wrists after cutting himself with a razor blade. He recovered. When the trial began in August 1983, Judge Burton Katz presided. Katz, formerly the district attorney, had prosecuted Manson family member Bobby Busselet for the murder of Gary Hinman. The prosecutor in this trial was Stephen Barshop, who, during his opening statement, told the jury that it took John Sweeney at least four minutes to strangle Dominique Dunn. Barshop then looked at his watch and had the courtroom sit still for four minutes. Time agonizingly ticked by. The Dunn family thought this was a promising start to the trial. Everything went downhill from there, according to an L.A. Times article. Here is Dominic Dunn. Help me. It helped me enormously. I mean, to, to be sitting uh, four feet away from the man who killed your daughter, who was all dressed up like a priest and read the Bible, I mean, it, was, it made me enraged at the show business thing that justice has uh, become, you know, dressing somebody up in a part, and I hated him. Throughout the trial, it was unclear to Dominique's family who was actually on trial, the defendant or the victim. For starters, Judge Katz couldn't even pronounce the victim's name correctly. He repeatedly mispronounced Dominique as Dominic. Katz showed sympathy for the defendant and a bias that came out in statements and decisions, like when he informed the Dunn family that if any of them cried, cried out, rolled their eyes, or exclaimed in any way, they would be asked to leave the courtroom. And he seemed to grant every wish made by the defense. Here again is Dominic Dunn. And, uh, and it, it so affected one of my sons uh, that, uh, you know, when they yelled out in the courtroom, Your Honor, Alex Dunn has tears in his eyes. And, and they kicked him out of the court. It was horrible. The overall defense, led by public defender Mike Adelson, was that this was not a crime. It was a tragedy as if the victim's death could be attributed to some kind of accident. Adelson had told the press, quote, He still loves Dominique very much and is as distraught over her death as members of her family. When all the facts of that tragic evening are known, you will find a mind with as little control as an electrical appliance with the plug pulled out. Subpoenaed to appear in court was a woman by the name of Lillian Pierce, a former girlfriend of Sweeney's who testified reluctantly 
that during her two-year relationship with the defendant, she had suffered a broken nose, punctured eardrum, collapsed lung, and had spent a total of 10 days in the hospital on two separate occasions, all as a result of John Sweeney's abuse. Public defender Adelson asked Lillian questions like, were you not drugged? But it was during the prosecution's questioning of Lillian that John Sweeney decided he'd had enough. When Prosecutor Barshop asked Lillian if she came from a well-off family and explained at the defense's objection that he was merely trying to determine a pattern, John Sweeney leaped from his seat at the defense table and ran toward a door that led to the judge's chambers. Panic erupted in the courtroom as onlookers thought he was trying to escape. He had to be restrained by several guards and bailiffs, and when he returned to his seat— Balling his eyes out, the judge told him he understood what a strain he was under. The jury must have had a lot of thoughts about this, right? Must have been jotting down notes and raising some eyebrows, getting to witness Sweeney's rage and temper in front of their own eyes, right? Nope. The jury wasn't even present. Why? Because the judge didn't allow the jury to hear Lillian Pierce's testimony. That's right, the jury never heard the details of Sweeney's ex experiencing physical abuse and anguish. The jury didn't witness Sweeney snap and throw a hissy fit in the courtroom. From then on, Dominic Dunn noted that Sweeney seemed sedated to prevent a similar outburst. Soon, it was Dominique's mother's turn to testify. Lenny detailed the events from the night that Dominique had fled her own home and went to her mom's. She spoke of Dominique's fear of the defendant. Did the jury finally have a chance to sympathize with the victim? No. Judge Katz didn't allow the jury to listen to Lenny's testimony and ultimately declared it was all hearsay, as were any statements that Dominique made to friends and to her agent in the last five weeks of her life. Lenny almost didn't even appear in court because initially the judge wasn't sure he wanted the jury to have unfair sympathy due to her use of a wheelchair. And while Judge Katz wouldn't let the jury hear about Sweeney's violent history, he was A-OK with allowing the defense to ask question about Dominique's alleged abortion that nobody could ever verify actually happened, but which was apparently a catalyst for Sweeney's abuse in October of 82. The implication from the defense always seemed to be that Sweeney's behavior was justified because of personal decisions Dominique had made. The jury was told by the defense that, quote, several days before she and John had a meeting, a very emotional meeting in which she expressed the desire to get back with Sweeney. They hugged, kissed, and talked about buying gifts for one another at Christmas and so forth. There was a part of her that loved him intensely, and a part of her that didn't want anything to do with him for a variety of reasons. And the defense argued that Dominique was laughing in a photo the day that she was to film her role in Hill Street Blues. How could she laugh if she had just been strangled? Witnesses for the defense included Sweeney's mother and two sisters, who all testified that they were raised in a home where the defendant's father was an abusive alcoholic. And... John Sweeney himself took the stand in his own defense, 
prompting Alex and Griffin Dunn, a.k.a. two kick-ass big brothers, to move their seats in the courtroom so that they were directly in the defendant's line of vision. At one point, the defense demanded Alex be removed from the courtroom for having tears in his eyes. Sweeney provided his own version of the events that took place at Dominique's home as he took the stand. Dominic Dunn described Sweeney as speaking quietly, not showing the jury any of the rage that he had exhibited during Lillian Pierce's testimony. He said this in his Vanity Fair article, quote, He painted his relationship with Dominique as nearly idyllic. He gave the names of all her animals, the bunny, the kitten, the puppy. He refuted the testimony of Brian Cook and Denise Dennehy and denied that he had attempted to strangle Dominique after their night on the town five weeks before the murder. He said he'd only tried to restrain her from leaving the house. He admitted they had separated after that and that she had had the locks changed so that he could not get back in the house. But he insisted that she had promised to reconcile with him and that her refusal to do so was what brought on the final attack. As for the night he strangled Dominique, Sweeney said, quote, I just lost my temper. I remember just like exploding. I just exploded and lunged at her. The testimony was also full of victim-blaming nonsense and more abuser characteristics like minimizing, denying, and blaming. It included his proclamation of heroism as he tried to resuscitate Dominique, and finally, his despair as he rushed inside and swallowed two bottles worth of pills, claims that were never substantiated. Deputy Frank DeMillo testified that he arrived at Dominique's house on October 30th and was told by Sweeney, quote, Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I just lost my temper and blew it again. The Dunn family were subjected to Dominique's name being trampled day after day in court, where she was portrayed as a woman who thought she was too good for Sweeney and poor Sweeney was belittled, that he acted in the heat of passion after Dominique promised they would reconcile, only to admit on October 30th that she'd been lying. At some point, the judge agreed to take murder one off the table so the jury had to decide between second degree and voluntary manslaughter. And by September, the case was handed over to the jury to decide Sweeney's fate. Dominic Dunn described in his article that while awaiting the verdict, he was pacing the house and turned on the TV absentmindedly, only to be stunned to hear Dominique screaming, What's happening? in the iconic end-of-movie scene in Poltergeist, which just happened to be airing that day. On September 21st, after a seven-week trial, Sweeney was convicted of voluntary manslaughter for Dominique's death and for misdemeanor assault from the earlier strangling incident. Sweeney patted his lawyer, Michael Adelson, on the back, and Adelson later said he was, quote, very happy with the outcome. Judge Katz told the jury to be confident in their decision and then thanked them on behalf of the attorneys and the families, which incensed Dominic Dunn as he called out, not for our family, Judge Katz. You have withheld important evidence from this jury about this man's history of violence against women. 
Later, the jury foreman, Paul Spiegel, said the jurors decided the defendant acted in the heat of passion. He went on to say that at one point, the jury was deadlocked because some of them felt, quote, an ordinarily reasonable man would not have choked her, would not have gone for the throat. Protesters were out in full force on the day of sentencing. Teresa Saldana flew from New York to L.A., and along with other members of Victims for Victims, protested the verdict outside of the courthouse. Teresa also read a statement that heavily criticized Judge Katz. John Sweeney sat in the courtroom as he did every day of the trial with a Bible in his hands. There was extra security present, and Lenny and Dominic Dunn spoke. Griffin Dunn presented to the judge a petition with over 1,000 signatures that protested the verdict. And while he had thanked the jury and seemed supportive of the decision at the reading of the verdict, Judge Burton Katz did a 180 at sentencing. He must not have expected or liked the public outcry. He essentially said the jury got it wrong. He said based on the evidence presented at trial that the defendant should have been found guilty of second-degree murder which would have carried with it a 15 years to life sentence. Katz said, quote, I am convinced this was murder. I am convinced that John Sweeney did not kill Dominique Don in the heat of passion, but rather that he killed her because his ego could not stand rejection. He told the Duns that his own daughters wouldn't talk to him in the weeks since the verdict. Poor guy. Sweeney was given the maximum sentence of six and a half years, but with good behavior, he could get out in three. This is what Dominic Dunn had to say about the trial. Because that judge, I blame him for everything, everything that went wrong in that ridiculous trial, where a man who strangled a young woman for five minutes until she was dead got two and a half years in prison. Slap on the hand. How could this have all happened? Let's break down the laws and some definitions. In California, voluntary manslaughter is defined as the unlawful killing of a human being during a sudden quarrel, in the heat of passion, or based on an honest but unreasonable belief in the need to defend oneself. The offense is a felony that carries a sentencing range of 3, 6, or 11 years in state prison. Now let's break that down for a moment. Manslaughter is defined as the unlawful killing of a human being without malice. Malice can be implied or expressed. Malice is implied when no considerable provocation appears or when the circumstances attending the killing show an abandoned and malignant heart. Malice is expressed when there is manifested a deliberate intention to unlawfully take away the life of a fellow creature. So how is it possible that John Sweeney's act was determined to be without malice? How is it that he did not commit an act with a deliberate intention to unlawfully take Dominique Dunn's life? How can it be determined by a jury that strangling someone for four to six minutes is without malice? Malice needs to be proven in order for a defendant to be found guilty of murder rather than manslaughter. And implied malice requires that the intended act is sufficiently dangerous to human life. Let's for a moment forget hindsight. We know the facts of the case, and we know what the jury didn't know in September of 1983. 
What the jury heard before deliberations was the defense's effort to portray Dominique Dunn as a privileged rich girl that provoked John Sweeney, this poor man from an abusive household that just wanted to make it in Hollywood. His defense of the crime was that she had told him they would get back together and then admitted to lying about it during their final confrontation. I suspect that knowing David Packer was at her home running lines was a contributing factor. It was too much for his ego to handle. The jury didn't hear his history of violence against women. They didn't hear Dominique's mother's testimony nor the words of Lillian Pierce, who was hospitalized as a result of John Sweeney's abuse. The jury didn't see Sweeney erupt into anger and attempt to run out of the courtroom. But even in the absence of all of that, the jury still could have agreed that Sweeney acted with malice. They know that it took him four to six minutes to strangle Dominique. And based on the verdict, the jury is essentially saying that they don't believe Sweeney was aware that squeezing someone's throat and cutting off their air for that length of time was dangerous and could lead to death. The jury foreman told reporters that they were all deadlocked at one point because there seemed to be a few jurors that didn't think a reasonable person would go for the throat, which means that after more deliberating, those people were swayed to the other side. The foreman also said, quote, a few jurors were just hot and tired and wanted to give up. Dominic Dunn has also pointed out that the jury didn't receive clear directions, and when they asked for help, they were told to look back at their instructions. Judge Burton S. Katz was met with so much criticism that soon after the trial, he transferred to juvenile court. Here is Dominic Dunn in that same interview. I went after him in a way in, in that article so that within a year, he went from the uh, uh, superior court to children's court to traffic court to no court. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I have to tell you, it sounds mean. I felt good. Griffin Dunn said the following in an interview decades later. The defense, the way they talked about my sister was just unspeakable. And then they sent away the jury so they didn't even see what this guy was. So I don't know what the jury was thinking. I guess they thought, oh, the rich girl deserved it, or the poor guy with his prop Bible really believed in God and now he's repentant or, you know, whatever. But they gave this ridiculous sentence, this insult to Dominique's life. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in four women have been victims of severe physical violence, beating, burning, strangling, by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic abuse? According to Wendy Mahoney, executive director for the Mississippi Coalition Against Domestic Violence, quote, The statistics are that women in abusive relationships are about 500 many times more at risk when they leave. Domestic violence is all about power and control. And when a woman leaves, a man has lost his power and control. John Sweeney displayed many of the classic signs of a domestic abuser, feeling entitled to power and control over his partner, choosing to use abuse to gain and maintain control. He spent three and a half years at a minimum security facility and was released in September of 1986. He got a job working as a chef again, 
And some reports from that time say that Lenny and Griffin Dunn heard about his new job and stood outside the restaurant handing out flyers that said, The food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. Other reports say that they considered doing this but never did. Sweeney reportedly changed his name to John Mora and is rumored to be living in the Pacific Northwest. Lenny Dunn founded Justice for Homicide Victims, a victims' rights organization, and was even honored by President George H.W. Bush in 1989. Lenny passed away on January 9, 1997, after years of battling MS. Dominic Dunn continued to write and contribute to Vanity Fair and wrote several best-selling novels. He appeared on several TV shows over the years discussing crime and celebrity and covered trials like O.J. Simpson and the Menendez brothers. He hosted his own show on court TV and never stopped advocating for justice for victims. Dominic died on August 26, 2009. The role in V that Dominique Dunn was working on when she was murdered was recast, the role played by Blair Tefkin. Footage filmed of Dominique was used as a cameo appearance, and the series was dedicated to her. She is buried in Westwood Village Cemetery in Santa Monica. Her epitaph says, Beloved daughter and sister, loved by all. Did anything change as a result of Dominique Dunn's murder and the injustice that resulted? When her mother, Lenny, started Justice for Homicide Victims, she teamed up with Marcella Leach, a woman whose 21-year-old daughter, Marcy, had been murdered in 1983. Marcy, too, was killed by an ex-boyfriend, Kerry Michael Conley. Conley was out on bail while waiting for the murder trial to begin when he ran into Marcy's mother at a grocery store. Conley reportedly taunted the victim's mother, who was shocked to see him out and about as she hadn't received any notice that he was free on bail. Out of this came Marcy's Law, Proposition 9, the California Victims' Bill of Rights Act of 2008. Marcy's Law seeks to give crime victims meaningful and enforceable constitutional rights equal to the rights of the accused. Some examples of the types of rights are to be treated with dignity and respect throughout criminal justice proceedings, to be notified of his, her, or their rights as a victim of crime, to be notified of specific public proceedings throughout the criminal justice process, and to be present and heard during those proceedings. Marzi's law has been successfully passed in 13 states so far. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic abuse, anonymous confidential help is available. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or text START to 88788. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so... If you'd like to support it, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser, or a five-star rating on Spotify. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. 
Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected Podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.